Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Back in the 1980s, when those of us who were alive had big hair, Don Henley from the band The Eagles was distressed by what he saw as an ever-increasing, it's-all-about-me kind of culture. And so he wrote a song called, Gimme What You Got. Here are a few of the lyrics. Gimme what you got. From Main Street to Wall Street to Washington, from man to woman to man, it's a nation of noses pressed up against the glass. They've seen it on TV and they want it pretty fast. You spend your whole life just piling it up there. You got stacks and stacks. Then Gabriel comes and taps you on the shoulder, but you don't see no hearses with luggage racks. That attitude of me first, I want what you have or more than you have, and I'll do whatever it takes to get it, whatever it takes to get ahead, is still prevalent in our culture. And it certainly was there in some of the biblical characters we meet in the first book of the Bible. In the story of the twins, Jacob and Esau, their mom, Rebecca, can feel them elbowing each other and kicking inside of her, seemingly vying for space in the womb. I've always thought of her as just groaning out in pain as she questions God about that, and I really liked the way Robbie read it, like, when you're just fed up, okay, God, this is enough. I, I liked your interpretation there. And then when the midwife helps to deliver Esau first, there's Jacob's tiny little hand with a firm grasp on his brother's heel as though he's trying to pull Esau back and get out first. Now, the stories of Genesis come from an oral tradition that was later written down, so it is the project, uh, product of years of families and neighbors sitting around the campfires sharing the stories of their ancestry. Through the years, as your family and mine share our own story about the people in the generations before us, they get a little more colorful with each telling, don't they? And so goes it with the descendants of Jacob and Esau. I put a cartoon-like drawing of Jacob and Esau on the front of the worship bulletins today because the storyteller has painted these twins in such over-the-top ways that it's almost comical. Esau, with his big burly frame, red hair, and general hairiness, a hunter who braves the dangers of the wilderness and comes home smelling gamey, the one who is depicted as a little stupid and clueless. And Jacob, the scrawny little schemer, the mama's boy who likes to stay in the tent and help her, a smart, nerdy guy who's always scheming and deceiving and manipulating, trying to one-up everybody else. The story about the soup seems right out of a cartoon, doesn't it? Bugs Bunny tricking old Elmer Fudd or the roadrunner getting the coyote to fall one more time with the anvil landing on his head come to mind. Big brawny Esau comes home exhausted and absolutely famished after a day of hunting. He's all about impulse and whatever he needs in the moment. So when Jacob holds a bowl of mom's tasty red lentil soup in front of him and he starts smacking his lips, you can imagine him say, hey, give me what you got. 
The NRSV Bible translation puts it even more crudely. Give me some of that red stuff. Instead of having compassion on his tired, hungry brother and just giving him the soup, Jacob sees an opportunity. Lifting the bowl close enough for Esau to smell it, he says, tell you what, you give me your birthright and I'll give you the soup. Now, in ancient Israel, the firstborn son, even if it is the firstborn twin, gets a double share of the father's inheritance, takes over as leader of the family clan in charge of all the flocks and the herds and possessions. Esau gives in to his immediate hunger and gives over everything to his little brother. Rachel must make some awfully good soup. Jacob actually cheats Esau twice. Later in the saga that we didn't read about today, Jacob covers himself in animal fur so that he'll seem hairy to his blind, dying father as he reaches out for him, and he will mistake Jacob for Esau so that he can be given Esau's blessing. You see, in those days, the blessing was the final wish of a dying man, and people believed there was real power in it. It was seen as almost magical, and it wasn't something you could take back. When poor old Isaac realizes that he's been deceived, he is heartsick that the deed is done, and it can't be undone. And so when Esau finds out about this latest stunt by his conniving little brother, he is so livid with anger that his face is probably as red as his hair, and he says, on the day our dad dies, I'm going to kill you. So Jacob runs away, he flees to Laban's house. He's gone for 21 years and finds himself his whole life looking over his shoulder, afraid of the day that Esau is going to exact revenge and take his life. Now, while Jacob does inherit flocks and possessions from his father, his life continues to be anxious, restless, and God never intended it that way. It seems that God is forever choosing the least likely candidate to be a vessel through whom God acts in the world. Good news for you and me. But Jacob, even before he was born, his mother was told that he would be the heir of the promise to Abraham. You don't need to be a schemer and fight for something that's already been given to you as a gift. And yet we keep seeing these biblical characters who, like us, struggle just to trust God. Success and security aren't enough in life. Esau, Esau may have said, give me what you got over the soup, but Jacob was saying, give me what you got most of his life. Cheating, scheming against not only his big brother, but his father, his uncle, anyone else he thought might keep him from what he wanted. In my childhood and teenage years, I wasn't in a sibling rivalry with my sister, but it seemed like I was always trying to play catch up with her. Being three, she, my sister was three years older and I wanted to do the things she was doing that I was too young to do yet. So in the dance rehearsal, when I was a donkey, she got to be a princess. When I was just banking out a few notes on the piano by myself, she was taking lessons. At the beginning of most school years, the teachers would make comments about how they hoped I would be as good of a student as my big sister. No pressure there. 
There are different ways that people long for what someone else has, even if it's just catching up or having a sense of the same acceptance or validation. One of the things I think God wants us to hear in this story is that our relationships are so much more important than all of that. When I was a very young seminary student doing a summer internship in a local church, I had been regularly visiting a woman named Mary in the nursing home. She was in the memory care unit. On one of the first visits, Mary thought I was her daughter and I made sure that I explained who I really was. But then it became evident that she was so sad to realize I wasn't her daughter that it was kinder just to let her think whatever she was thinking. Sometimes she believed we were at her old home or sometimes we were at the seashore together in her mind. I didn't lie to her and say I was her daughter, but when I stopped, stopped trying to correct her, you can't imagine the joy it brought to her face just to talk with me. Since people who experience memory issues tend to hold on the most to the memories the furthest back, I would encourage her to reminisce about the days when she was a child or when she met her husband or when she was first a mother. I didn't have to say much at all. She would take herself on these trips back to times and places that were much happier than her present reality. One day when I went to visit her, the nurse told me that Mary was dying. The family had been contacted, but they lived so far that she doubted they would make it in time, so I went into the room to hold her hand and to pray. This time, she didn't think I was her daughter. She thought I was her sister. Suddenly, this, work of, this look of worry and desperation came over her face. She held tightly to my hand, and she asked me over and over as she saw the sister through her eyes, asking me for forgiveness. I knew from past conversations that her sister had died a few years ago. However, as Mary held on to me with this look of pain and desperation, still believing I was her sister, she began to beg me to forgive her. What should I do, I wondered. Was it my place to offer forgiveness when it wasn't mine to give? She seemed so agitated and sad in need of reassurance. Finally, it occurred to me that she already had God's forgiveness. So it was okay to let her know that forgiveness was there for her. Instead of saying, I forgive you, I tried to smile reassuringly and I said, Mary, you're forgiven. She sighed as just absolute relief washed over her face. Her agitation just seemed to move to a place of peace just a few minutes before she left this world. Now, Mary was from a quite well-to-do family, but none of that mattered to her in her final days. Like Don Henley wrote in his song, you don't see hearses with luggage racks. I think of people who make themselves miserable trying to grab for someone else's heel like Jacob. I think of people that always want to be first, to get the most for themselves, to feel important. Isn't that what life's all about? We know better. 
We know that inner joy and peace are about loving God and our neighbor, about acts of compassion and care, the generosity of forgiveness, the grace of God. Many years after Jacob ran from Esau's wrath, he decides to go back home, assuming that his brawny, angry brother is ready to pulverize him. Jacob hopes that if he acts humble and contrite, bows down to Esau, offers all sorts of presents, he might just make it out alive. When they finally see each other, Jacob is shaking in his sandals, but then he gets that surprise of his life. Despite the fact there are 400 men with swords there, Esau comes running over to him, gives him a big bear hug. It says he fell on his neck. There are hugs and kisses. Jacob has been learning the art of humility while Esau has been learning the art of forgiveness. All those years that Jacob assumed his brother was brooding and planning his revenge, Esau's heart was softening. He's not angry. He just wants to love his brother. As Esau has his own family and grows to love them, perhaps he sees that some things are much more important, much more precious than your inheritance. All those years, Jacob fears seeing the face of his sibling again, and now he says to Esau, truly, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. I guess Jacob realizes that God looks a lot like unconditional love. The good news of the tale of Jacob and Esau is that divine grace meets us in our flawed family histories and in every other aspect of our lives. Yes, we hurt each other, sometimes in what seems to be unforgivable ways, and then we somehow learn the humility to say to ourselves that we, like our family, are human and we make mistakes too. Why should we let our mistakes or judgment of others for their mistakes define us when we could let ourselves be defined by love? In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus reminds us that if you have a broken relationship with anyone, your first priority, even before going to your place of worship, should be to be reconciled with that person. Reconciliation in itself is an act of worship. Even as he was on the cross, remember that Christ prayed for forgiveness for those who crucified him, for love is ultimately stronger than hate. May you and I, as we look at our own imperfect lives, let God's love into our hearts and allow it to flow through us and into this world as blessing. As we look at one another through the eyes of such love, we will see God's face. Amen.